So I invite you, beloved, to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Remembering, of course, that chapter and verse divisions are not divinely inspired. Uh, sometimes the chapter divisions interfere with uh, our understanding of the flow. So this is a new chapter, but it's still continuing with Paul's concern to demonstrate that Jews and Gentiles are equally under the law, equally in sin. So hear the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and understanding of his word this morning. It is a very comforting thought, beloved, to know that God keeps his promises. What he has committed himself to in his word, he will bring to pass. God does not lie. Indeed, he cannot lie. God is dependable and can be counted on to keep his word. God is the very definition of integrity. God does not change. He is not a shapeshifter. However, if we are acquainted at all with the scriptures, we know that God has promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Paul's ethnic kinsmen, the Jews, were guilty of forgetting that God must be true to himself regarding what he has promised his own people. Remember that this whole discussion is about how we are all in sin, Jew and Gentile alike. All need salvation through faith in Christ, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In our text for this morning, Paul reminds us, reminds the saints at Rome and reminds us that there are many benefits that accrue to the people of God that fall short of eternal salvation when we fail to experience these benefits with faith in Christ. Our passage for this morning will be looked at under the following headings. Is there any benefit to being a Jew? Romans 3, 1 and 2. And second, does Israel's faithfulness, faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Verses 3 and 4. And then, if God is glorified in my sin, why am I held responsible? Verses 5 through 8. So let's look at our first 
heading, Is There Any Benefit to Being a Jew? In our text for this morning, Paul is carrying on a conversation with either an imagined dialogue partner or is relaying objections to his teaching, which he has heard from others uh, over the years in his missionary experience. Either way, Paul wants to cut off an inappropriate inference some might draw from what he has said thus far. You might have concluded that if possession of the law and undergoing the rite of physical circumcision are not guarantees of redemption, then there are no benefits to being Jewish. Paul would profoundly disagree. Granting the truth of what he has already said, that the real Jew is one who is one inwardly, he now reminds us that despite our overwhelming intuition, there in fact are benefits to being outwardly included among the old covenant people of God. There are benefits to being among the people of God even if you are not uh, saved, if put it that way. To the question about whether there is any advantage or value to being Jewish or undergoing circumcision, Paul answers that there is great value, much in every way. At this point, we might expect Paul to rattle off a list of benefits, but he doesn't do that here, although he does do something like that in Romans 9, 4, and 5. So if you want to see how he would give a long list of benefits, you can check there. Rather, he sums up all the benefits in one supersized benefit. The Jews were given the honor of receiving the oracles of God, the scriptures. And it was and is no minor privilege or value to have received the word of God from him directly through his human servants, as no other people could rightly and honestly claim that. As a matter of fact, the Jews, as the old covenant people of God, were entrusted with God's very words. That's the language he uses, entrusted. The scriptures were God's words and not merely words about God, nor were the scriptures merely words about Jewish religious experience in the ancient world around the Mediterranean basin. Paul's kinsmen were the recipients of God's revelation of his character and expectations and plan of redemption. Today we might say that while attending church or being a member of a church does not guarantee that one is saved, it does mean that you are more likely to come into contact with the ordinary means of grace. That is, those media that God has said in his word that he would bless. The words, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Those are the ordinary means of grace. To be in an Orthodox Bible-believing church means that the word of God is read and preached and taught made visible in baptism and the Lord's Supper, and our prayers are molded by the Word of God. Exposure to the Word of God does not guarantee salvation, but it's necessary to becoming a Christian and growing in grace. One cannot come to true faith in Christ without the Word, and one cannot mature as a Christian without the Word. Parenthetically, that uh, reveals to us that uh, 
you cannot grow as a Christian. You cannot become a Christian in the first place, and you cannot grow as a Christian without the regular, consistent study of God's Word. Hearing it here in corporate worship is a key part of that, but also studying during the week, studying God's Word. Now, it doesn't have to be long passages. Uh, I think it's better if you do five minutes regularly than trying to make up for three weeks of not reading with, you know, two hours. So it's better to have consistency and cover a smaller portion uh, of God's Word than to go days and weeks on end without studying God's Word, uh, with the exception, perhaps, of attending worship. But even that is... The things are, these things are meant to reinforce each other. Private worship, family worship, and public worship are meant to mutually interact with each other, to reinforce. They were not, uh, now the, the possession of the law, or the word of God in general, uh, these things, um, I jumped ahead. Isn't that terrible? That's what happens when you leave the manuscript and add. Uh, to be in an Orthodox Bible-believing church means that the, the Word of God is read, while exposure to the Word does not guarantee that one will become a Christian or grow in grace. You cannot be a Christian or grow in grace without the Word. It is no minor privilege or advantage to be within earshot or eyeshot of God's word. Analogously, think about this analogy. Uh, the publication of, and availability of news and commentary in the public square via newspapers and magazines and TV news and now the web and podcasts does not guarantee that citizens will avail themselves of these sources and therefore be well-informed citizens. But they are necessary preconditions to being well-informed citizens. So possession of the law and undergoing the outward physical rite of circumcision were not in and of themselves guarantees of eternal salvation. Without possession of the word of God, the old covenant people of God would not have known about the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation does not come through what we call general or natural revelation. Now, they would have known, as we know, that God is real, and they would have known about his moral expectations. But they would have had no other access to the mind of God. Circumcision points to the spiritual reality of the new birth, regeneration, an enlightened mind, and a renewed will. By nature, both Jew and Gentile are at enmity with God. God's word and the physical rite of circumcision reveal God's means of redemption. Are you aware of the significance of your exposure to the word of God and to his sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper? Have you improved them by coming to faith in Christ and walking in his light? If you ever read the old Puritans, they talk about improving something. And that language is actually in the Westminster Standards. That, that means to take advantage of. 
to improve your baptism means that you actually do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that are signified in the baptism are real in your life. That's what improvement means. So I thought I would pull a word from our heritage. That brings us to our second point. Does Israel's faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Some might suggest that the fact that not all Israelites have come to faith or been Jews inwardly signaled a failure on God's part. But how so? God's word never, when rightly understood, suggested that all people everywhere at all times will be saved. As nice as that may sound, the scriptures are clear that some will not be saved. That God specially chose Israel to be his people is true, but from the beginning, Paul's distinction between being a Jew outwardly and inwardly has been at work. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, beloved, we see that distinction. We see God's uh, uh, distinction He makes it pretty clear in his curse uh, on the serpent uh, in the Garden of Eden after the fall. We see this in Genesis 3.15. We see there a division in the human race between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now that division will eventually bring the seed singular, and Paul likes to, he plays with that uh, word seed because it can be singular and plural. So the word seed in Genesis 3.15 initially means plural, people. People of the, of the woman, people of the serpent. But eventually it will mean one person. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham. The seed of David. The Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that uh, this division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent uh, cuts through families and nations and people. Cain killed Abel. Cain was the seed of the serpent, whereas Abel was the seed of the woman. While the distinction between the church and the world is real, the fact of the matter, beloved, is that the division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent even cuts across the division between the church and the world, at least as we understand the church outwardly or visibly. And keep that in mind. You have both the church and the world, but then you also have the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent distinction, and unfortunately, or by God's providence, but humanly speaking, it seems unfortunate that, that there will be some seed of the serpent in the church, which should be made up of the seed of the woman. You can be a member of the visible church, but not be of the seed of the woman. If you are a member of the visible church, you ought to be of the seed of the woman, but it is not automatic. Paul's concern here is with denying the inference that because not all Jews are Jews inwardly, that God's word has failed. But how does it follow that if the Jews as a people prove unfaithful, that makes God faithless? As I've already pointed out, God has reckoned with the fact that not every last member of the old covenant people of God would inherit eternal life. Today, not every last member of the church will inherit eternal life either. Now, that's a sad fact. 
But a fact it is. That's why the Apostle Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Now, I'm not saying that in every absolute, every single congregation is made of a, of a mix. But in general, we can say that the church is made up of both saints and sinners. Sinners who are saved by grace and sinners who aren't. So Paul is concerned to, to, uh, to perform what we would today call a theodicy, the defense of God's justice or faithfulness. Additionally, we would say, God in his word set out both promises of blessing and promises of cursing. This is the thing uh, that the Jews of Paul's day forgot. They only... They only looked at the promises of blessing. God will prove faithful to his word either in blessing his people or in his cursing us. That's a hard saying to absorb, but it is true. Now, we want to make a distinction at this point. It's not in my uh, outline, but make a distinction between the wrath of God as a judge and the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. Because it can be the same outward event, uh, but viewed from two different angles. You can be a disobedient child of God and receive the Father's discipline, because every father who loves his children disciplines them. Or you can be outside the people of God and be receiving the judgment of God. To us, they may look the same, but to God, they're very different. And you ought to take some encouragement from that. The point here is that God, whether he blesses or curses, is faithful to his revealed word. The reading and the proclamation of God's word will always achieve its purpose, and that's, of course, what the prophet Isaiah said many years ago. The word will not go out empty or void. It never leaves us as it found us. It will either lead us to faith in Christ or, or it will lead us to condemnation before the white throne of judgment at the end of days. Let God be true and every man a liar. God is not subject to our standards. We are subject to his. And his standard is just his holy character. In other words, God is not uh, subject to some higher standard than himself. He is the highest standard, period. I was about to say conceivable, but beyond that. He is the highest standard altogether. There is no higher standard. God is never at the mercy of our judgments. Our judgments, frankly, are immaterial when it comes to the end of the matter. And note there in this passage that Paul does cite from Psalm 51.4, and Job 9.32 to establish his point that God is faithful. In other words, what, what's happened is the Jews have forgotten that God promised to, to, to punish those who are disobedient. 
And they, they, they've remembered the part about God blessing his people, but they forgot about the part where God, it says God has said that he would punish those who are disobedient. If, now we come to the third point. Or before that, let me ask you this. Have you allowed God's word to mold your thinking about him? Or have you allowed personal desires or cultural mores to sneak in and color your thinking? We all have to search our hearts and minds to be sure that what we think about God is actually uh, resting upon God's word and not upon some mental or conceptual idol that we have fabricated in our minds. Now we come to the third part. If God is glorified in my sin, then why am I held responsible? Paul concludes our text this morning by bringing in a related point. You've got the issue of God's faithfulness in, the, in view of his people's faithlessness, and then you've got a related point, which is that uh, if God is glorified by my sin, then why am I held responsible for sinning? Uh, Paul concludes uh, by saying that God is glorified in our, in our obedience and in our disobedience. Now, he's glorified in different ways. Or we might say that the glorification is asymmetrical. Those of you who like mathematics, you understand what I'm saying. They're not, they don't work in exactly the same way. The disobedience and the obedience uh, bring God glory in different ways. But either way, God is glorified. Let that truth sink in. It is not necessarily intuitive. You might feel a bit put off by this revelation. God gets the glory either way? Yes. Whole books have been written on the topic. We are not the point of the story. God is. That's why we say that redemption is primarily for God's glory and secondarily for our benefit. Jonathan Edwards, the great American Puritan, has even written a whole book on the topic called The End for Which God Created the World. If we tried to act like God in this regard, and to be honest, by nature we do, we would make mincemeat of our lives and our world. God is God. We are not God. So the first thing we need to get right when we look at this question, the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, is that God and we are not the same kind of beings. One of the biggest errors of people who complain about the relationship of God's sovereignty to human responsibility is that they treat God as if he were one of us. He's not. God is not our equal. He is not even a slightly improved version. He is God. We are creatures. Paul's uh, conversation partner here, imagined or not, raises the question of fairness. 
Uh, how can God hold me accountable for my behavior if my lie redounds to his glory? It would appear that the expansion of God's glory depends upon, indeed needs in some sense, my lie for his truthfulness to be glorified. May it never be. It is one thing to recognize that God works through means or secondary causes. It's quite another thing to, re to reduce God to these secondary causes as if God had no recourse to direct miraculous activity. Or Paul's interlocutor, that's a fancy word for conversation partner, his interlocutor assumes, consciously or not, that God and man are on the same level or are equal partners in the universe. And sometimes as believers, we fall into that same trap. I've heard it said by someone, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why. Now, you know, God can handle that, but I'm pretty sure that when we get to heaven, that is not the first thing that person is going to be doing. So Paul's conversation partner assumes the equality of God and human beings. Not so. Is God right to inflict his wrath on us if our lies further his glorious purposes? Our lies do further God's glorious purposes. But our lies are not justified by that reality. In other words, the fact that God uses our lies to further his glory is not an excuse or a justification for us lying. We are still accountable or liable for our sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. The fact that God includes them and uses them, indeed works them through, to further the glory of his name does not get us off the hook with him. What I wanted to say earlier is that, is that God has a right to glorify himself. He has a right to demand us to glorify him. See, he's very different from us. We don't have the right to glorify ourselves, and we don't have the right to demand others to glorify us. Because God is God and we are not, we sometimes think that God it must be a really uh, uh, self-obsessed being to be always and everywhere seeking out his own glory. But if you were God, and you're not, but if you were, you'd, un you'd, you'd recognize the legitimacy of the fact that because you're the greatest being in all the universe, you do have a right to the praise and glory of everyone else. You don't need that praise and you don't need that glory, but you do require it. This is what in philosophy and theology is called the full bucket problem. God doesn't need our praise, but he requires it. It's like a bucket filled with water. What happens when you pour more water into it? Water falls out and spills, right? That's called the full bucket problem. We can't completely understand how a being like God who, who is uh, uh, beyond the need for praise yet requires it. But both things are true. 
Case in point, in Acts 2, 22 to 24, if you're uh, still wrestling with the relationship of divine sovereignty to human responsibility, and notice I haven't said human freedom. There's a reason for that. Because you have to define freedom properly. And in most cases, freedom is not understood properly. In Acts 2, 22 to 24, Paul, Peter points out that Jesus Christ was put to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and the evil conniving of wicked men among the Jewish leaders and Roman officials. Both. This is, this is a sermon he preached on the day of Pentecost. The first sermon that Peter preached after the Holy Spirit fell on the church. So you see, it's not an either-or. It's not either God's sovereignty or human responsibility. It's a both-and. We have to understand both properly in order to understand, to some extent, how they work. In this instance, God determined beforehand that his son would be put to death by worthless fellows. Now, that term, worthless fellows, is a technical term that comes from the Old Testament, uh, and so I picked that up. It's a good description of the men who were involved in our Lord's crucifixion. These men were determined beforehand that they would do these things, but these worthless fellows acted on their own varied sinful motivations. In other words, no one coerced them into acting sinfully. They chose to act out their sinful inclinations, and yet they were determined beforehand. Paul concludes by pointing out that while our sinfulness and specific sins are weaved into God's plan for the world, that fact does not justify our sin. Our lies further the glory of God because he overcomes them in the gospel of his son Jesus Christ and because he exercises his justice in the punishment of sin. But that does not legitimize our sin. The plan of God included sinful thoughts, words, and actions of the Jewish high priest and the Roman governor and all their underlings and associates, and I might say psychophants and minions. That their sinful actions were used to bring about my salvation does not make them just or right actions considered in and of themselves. That being true... The fact that God overcomes sin by his grace does not mean that we ought to sin in order to increase God's graciousness. That's a wrong inference that is sometimes drawn. If God is gracious and always overcomes sin, then let's sin some more so we can get more grace. And some think that way. It's in the history of American religion, you'd be surprised how many have thought that way. Grace is simply God's merciful goodwill towards us sinners in Jesus Christ. That God uses our sin within the outflow of his eternal plan for the universe and in the unfolding of his plan of salvation does not justify us in sinning more that grace may abound all the more. That's a form of presumption. Presumption, which is not something that is, is good. You see, true grace moves us to confession of sin 
and repentance or regret for sin and its consequences. True grace unites us to Christ, who is the perfect law keeper. God uses our sinfulness and sin, but grace abounds all the more. Paul is at pains to deny what some have thought he taught, that we ought to sin so that God's grace would increase all the more. That, that idea, that false idea, arose no doubt because of what Paul was saying about the, the role of the Mosaic law in the Christian life. Have you come to grips with God's sovereignty and your responsibility? Well, beloved, God is sovereign and you are responsible. That's a fact. In conclusion, beloved, God is concerned with his own glory because he is God. God has a right to be concerned with his own glory because it reflects his nature and the way things are. God can never think too highly of himself, but we can think too highly of ourselves. Thankfully, Christ has taken our sins upon himself, including our sins of thinking inordinately about ourselves. God is faithful and has proven this in that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. While we were God's enemies and while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. So you see, the, the, the inappropriate inference that is drawn does not nullify the fact that grace abounds where sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. See, that's a fact. So denying that it's an, that gives an excuse to sin more is not to deny the reality that grace overcomes sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The value, worthiness, and effect of Christ's death and resurrection outlast and outpace the sins involved in bringing it about. In the death of Christ and in his resurrection, we see the death of sin and misery and even death itself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us today. We pray that uh, we would uh, meditate upon what has been said and uh, dwell upon it, think about it. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.